0: Creative Source, your home for Creative Romance Month. I'm Nathan, your most February host.
1: I'm Andy, your wokadiliicious host. And I'm Pat,
2: your 761st Tank Division host.
0: None of you make any sense. Uh, anyway, also we have a uh, special guest, as is the way we do things a lot of the time. Uh, welcome back, friend <laughs> of
3: the pod, Lolita. Hey! Hello,
1: hello! Hello! Hey! Welcome. How's it going?
3: Can't complain. Living the dream. Right on. <laughs> I think that
0: is like verbatim what you told us earlier when we started the call before the episode. Because it's so well. true, <laughs> and I I love it. I'm <laughs> totally on board.
3: Well, you know um, how it
4: is.
1: We all know it. In what that means, like we in, do. In Midwest that has a we translation.
0: <laughs> right. Like I'm barely holding it together. Is basically what it means most of the time.
1: Pretty much. Um,
0: but but I don't <laughs> want to bother you. This second <laughs> right. <laughs> we are, this is sort of a, I'm not going to call it a special episode, uh, although it is. It is, we have a little bit of a weird format for this one Um, that Andy used once for our uh Beat a Dead Poll episode, I believe.
1: Which it uh, turned out to be pretty popular.
0: Yes, and it was the first one you ever edited. Uh, you've yes, edited a few episodes since then, but it was very exciting for me. Woo. <laughs> I didn't have to edit an episode for once.
1: Let's um, fact check it.
0: <laughs> that is true. <laughs> but what we're doing today is we're going to have a bunch of guests that you're about to hear from, uh, each of whom is picking a historical figure from the American past who is also Black. The idea being, this is our Black History Month episode. And I wanted to talk a little bit about Black History Month uh, with three of you, if I can, um, because I think I have a hot take. <laughs> I don't know. But uh, personally, my personal view is that I think it was good. Uh, Black History Month was first proposed in 1969, 1970 at Kent State University. And that was Andy and I were talking before the episode. That was actually the same year of the Kent State massacre of the shooting. Um, that happened a few months after that was in May. Uh, this obviously happened in February, but I thought that was really interesting and I think there might've been some good done at some point, but the problem with having a black history month is it from my perspective separates out black history from American history. And right. Then,
1: and, you know, we kind of just talked about that in a way with, maggie and and michael on a previous episode the education episode where you know a a lot of these people that you're going to hear about you don't learn about them in school you just learn Mm -hmm. about the white people or
0: you hear the whitewashed version of these people
3: right Mm -hmm.
2: well so i mean from my perspective i feel like i got a lot of good out of black history month but we also did like whole sections on civil rights. And that wasn't necessarily in February. But like, one of my personal heroes is Dr. Martin Luther King. Like, I really like a lot of his speeches, a lot of his writings, his method of like nonviolent action. I feel like mm-hmm. does a lot of good in the world. But that is a very famous black American from history there are plenty of other important black americans that i probably couldn't tell you about off the top of my head and i guess that's what we're really focusing on today is like highlighting those you know lesser seen figures that need need a signal boost we're right. we're doing well, a signal boost today so right. to
1: to nathan's hot take it's good to highlight that which is swept under the rug but At what point do these people just kind of show up equally automatically in in everything from politics to entertainment to, um, you know, every walk of life?
3: I mean, I I see what you mean, though. Like, I think that black history would mean more if it were just that, if it were highlighting a particular, like highlighting our history while also teaching it on a regular basis. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, if it's something that we learned about, you know, like, if it wasn't an elective in in college, you know what I mean? If it was something that we had to learn about, but then in February, we just took a little extra time. But I think as it is now, it's very much like what you said, Andy. It's just that, you know, we only care about Black history for 28 days in February, 29 on a leap year. <laughs> and so, you know, that's that's not the best. Right. Like,
0: I think about, like, you remember when all the white people last year found out that Juneteenth was a thing? Yeah, I do. I I do. I do. Yeah, like, all like everybody was like, wow, that's interesting. Like, how is that not celebrated by everyone as the like the time where all Americans were set free? Like, how is that not a thing that we can all be extraordinarily proud of? And also extraordinarily ashamed of why it happened, like why it had to happen. Right.
1: I mean, arguably because that was the beginning of another hundred some years of further oppression, but you know.
3: Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and- <laughs> here
1: I am for the happy take, <laughs> you know.
0: Right. Or not hot take that it's over for that matter right. too. Yeah. yeah. Right.
3: <laughs> I mean, I ain't gonna hold you. I didn't know about Juneteenth till last year either. <laughs> Fair enough. Which I guess I should be ashamed about. But I don't you don't know what you don't know until you know it.
0: Right. So But I think,
3: but I think that's a
0: perfect example. So can I ask, are you all products of
3: public education? Yeah. I mean yeah. I mean I went to college, but I did go to public. Yeah, sure. Uh
2: I'm I'm a product of public and private education.
3: Yeah,
0: I'm in the same boat. I had a confusing educational process that i didn't want to get into but i did do i did a little bit of both i got crappy educations from both
1: I'm public all the way
0: mm-hmm. well if that's
1: not true i did go to a private college mm, all right. but uh but,
0: but the point is like you don't like i think that's a really good point lolita you don't know what you don't know yeah if, if you're never exposed to that stuff
3: Mm-hmm. How like how are you expected to find out about it? And mm-hmm. I mean, in high school, I took I took one semester of Black History junior year, and that was it. Yeah, I mean, and then in college, me. I ch- I took Black History, but it was it wasn't a requirement; it was an elective course. Same, yeah, but I like
0: it, Black History wasn't an option. Like, I I didn't have the option of uh doing anything in high school.
3: I mean, I only picked it because I. I I thought it would be easy. <laughs> Cause I'm like, <laughs> black history, black me. Like, <laughs> but fair. I'm not gonna lie to you. I dropped it. I did. I didn't be even finish the class. I, really? I, I didn't like it. Honestly, I, I just didn't like it. I don't remember why I didn't like it, but I didn't and I dropped it. I can tell you, I got a
0: B.
1: So
3: <laughs> not, not
0: bad. Better than me. I think <laughs> you
1: should be proud of that.
2: Well, so guys, if you're, if you're gonna pitch, black history month because we're going to teach it all of the time that seems like a great ideal to strive for i'm right. not totally sure we're there yet that we well, that we can throw black history month away <laughs> because we're just so far beyond it like i'm not sure that that's accurate with
1: reality so i agree but i think you have a problem here of like kind of a circular prerequisite i guess you could say mm-hmm. like where, well, you can't get rid of Black History Month until it's taught all through, you know, as just um, American history in general. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't start to get integrated into the full curriculum because it gets this whole month carved out in teachers' curriculums and they're like, well, whatever. You know, it just doesn't...
3: And additionally to that point, I think that a lot of the reasons why, you know, Black History isn't... I don't know what the word is, but is because if we talk about black history regularly, that means that no one has an excuse to be ignorant anymore. you know what I mean, and it means that a lot of people will have to come face to face with their own racism and their own biases and their own their own things, and I feel like nobody wants to do that, so if we just talk about black history in February, that means for eleven months out of the year, people can pretend that like black people have no history, that nothing ever <laughs> happened, and nobody did anything wrong so I mean, I feel like. White guilt, man. That stuff is wrong.
1: Well, uh, <laughs> man. yeah. I feel like basically for the first thirty years of thirty or forty years of having the Black History Month, it's gotten away with being basically the Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks
3: mm-hmm. month. When we talk about and how he brought Harriet people Tubman. together and and, like, and she saved, us, but we don't talk about the we don't talk about the the nitty gritty. You know what I mean?
1: Right. Like it's
0: been. Hey, it, it, I will not let you forget about George Washington Carver inventing peanut butter, sir.
1: Thank you for that editorial. So, like, I feel like... (laughs) That's an important point. I I feel like, like, you know, at some some point, maybe roughly 10 years ago or so, people started to just want more out of their... Yeah, we've heard all the Martin Luther King speeches. We know the Rosa Parks story. Give me something more. And it started to take on more shape where people are learning more about people like Booker T. Washington and Frederick Douglass and W.E.B. Du Bois and some of the other, you know, big, big, big names in America, in shaping American history.
0: Right. Yeah, I understand there is a ton of white guilt and we won't, don't want to talk about, I say, we white people don't want to talk about it because it's wildly uncomfortable.
3: Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: It is really uncomfortable. Like if I can do a little cross promotion for our Texas episode that we just released fun fact, it wasn't until 2018 that Texas finally taught that slavery was the main cause of the civil war. Mm. 2018. (laughs) Are you kidding me? If anything, I'm
1: surprised that they stopped.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. So, but that's the thing. Like, We we like to pretend like this stuff is in the past, or that we've like we're we're moving forward, and it's just not. Wait, so so
2: can I put a pause on this? Did you guys not learn about uh, like Frederick Douglass and W.E.B. Du Bois like outside of February? Did you guys only get that in February?
1: I don't know. That was Uh, what twenty years ago. But I mean, I mean, mean, I know
3: we. I mean, I mean. I know I remember in school they made a big deal out of like Black History Month like performances. Like I remember in the fifth grade, we sang Lift Every Voice and Sing, and I had never heard that song before a day in my life. And I was like, what is this? And it was literally just like all the colored kids on stage (laughs) singing. It was like it was the most ridiculous thing I've ever done in my life. And we sang and we sang Black or White by Michael Jackson.
1: Oh,
0: nice. That's that is a banger. (laughs)
3: They threw that in there
0: too. Macaulay um, Culkin was in that video, so I mean, oh, nice. There you go. It, you do, you do have, you have all of it working together. I,
1: mean, <laughs> I would say, you know, when I was in school, and I went to in the Cleveland Heights Public Schools, and there was also, you know, a significant number of black teachers. And I remember, you know, I had, I had a uh, an English teacher in I think tenth grade, who. During Black History Month, she had us read books by Black authors and did some other stuff where we explored, you know, beyond the, the, the basics of Black history. So there definitely was, like, some exposure in my schooling. But, I mean, part of that is because, like I said, there was <clears> – <throat> excuse me – there was a significant segment of Black teachers at my schools. And so it got – Support. It had people pushing for that, um, mm-hmm. and and to be fair, my parents specifically moved to Cleveland Heights at the time when you know I was about three at the time. Specifically moved to Cleveland Heights because it was a very diverse community. That mm-hmm. is their stated reason.
3: Yeah,
0: No, I mean that's that's one of the reasons that
1: I'm you, sure it wasn't because of good taxes. Because
0: right, <laughs> no, the taxes are wildly expensive here. Um, but there, it is like there's a good amount of diversity here, mm-hmm. um, compared to a lot of neighborhoods um, in Cleveland.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm the only Negro for miles around in my neighborhood.
0: <laughs> I remember you talking about that um, in yeah. code switching. Ooh, another uh, another cross promotion with another episode.
2: Hey, yeah, we can what? link that episode in the doobly doo. I think we yeah, need absolutely. a
1: jingle for that. So I like. like You know how you
2: build a building and you start with, like, you put the scaffolding up around it? You don't just start building the building. I see February as Black History Month as kind of that scaffolding. Like, yeah, no, ideally we'll just have the building, and the building will stand up by itself. But until we get there, I don't think that we're doing harm by having this month that we celebrate Black History. The problem that you guys are saying that it's not being taught outside of February, I guess I would have to see that because I've never seen that problem in my experience.
0: There's certainly not adequate representation outside of February. I think that is not anything that someone could argue with. I mean, think about the people that you learned about. In your history classes, and how many of those faces weren't white? Uh, History is written by the victor, and boy, howdy, were white people ever the victors in American history?
1: Wow, until now, when they had, you know, an election stolen from them or something.
0: Right, but
3: are you going to
2: retroactively change that though? (laughs) Like, I mean, you can highlight the heroes that, like, we can find documents for, but I mean. History well, is, I, I mean, it's there.
0: Yeah. And I actually agree with you mostly, Pat. Like I don't have, I would have had zero problem with a uh, black history month in 1970. I would have thought it was great. And I think we are growing past it now. The same way we grew, grew past the idea of a melting pot or using the term tolerance instead of acceptance. Like there, there are a bunch of different ways that like there, I think scaffolding is a good way to look at it or like a set of stairs or something like you have to hit the first stair before you can hit the third stair. I'm thinking I, I skipped a lot of stairs when I was younger in like high school and stuff, but like (laughs) you have to hit some amount of stairs before you get there. And there are a lot of problematic ways we went about that. And I think this was a good idea at one point and now it's time to like Let's hit that next step. Well, like let's go ahead and keep on like moving up the staircase.
1: Or maybe we can do it, you know, kinda like have you ever seen the Amish do a barn raising? Sure. <laughs> just do it that way?
0: Um
2: Sure.
1: That,
2: I mean that kills my metaphor, but yeah, okay. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome.
1: Metaphor well, uh, slain.
0: Yeah. But, yeah, you're going to hear from a bunch of people talking about a bunch of important historical figures that I personally think we all get to feel proud about.
1: Uh, Let's hop into it. Thank you so much, Lolita.
3: No problem.
0: To get us started, here's Professor Margaret Maggie Nash, highly educated, author, educator, just thoroughly inspiring, and also Andy's aunt. That's the only way we could possibly get her on our podcast. Make sure to listen to our EduMication episode to hear more from her, but here she is talking about another incredibly inspiring figure, Anna J. Cooper.
5: Anna Julia Cooper was born into slavery in North Carolina in 1858. Her mother was an enslaved person, and her father was her owner. She was seven when the Civil War ended, and she and her mother were free. Cooper is someone who fought for African American rights, for women's rights, and for the human right to pursue knowledge. She confronted racism and sexism, and was uncompromising in her belief in the need for education for all. Here's a little bit of her story. At age 10, she received a scholarship to attend an Episcopal school in Raleigh that taught African Americans from elementary through high school. The school also did some teacher training and taught some trades. She excelled as a student and quickly became a tutor to others. It was here, too, that she first felt the need for women's rights. At the school, only boys could take the highly academic and college prep courses, while girls had to take what was called the ladies' course. She fought this rule and won. While she was at school there, she met the man who would become her husband. But sadly, he died only two years into their marriage. In 1881, she's now 22 years old and already widowed. She earned another scholarship, this time to Oberlin College in Ohio, where she earned both bachelor's and master's degrees in mathematics. She then took a teaching position at the then well-known M Street High School in Washington DC, the only high school in the city for African American youth. She worked there for 30 years, including a few years as principal. While she was teaching there, her brother and his wife both died, leaving five young children, ranging in age from a six-month-old baby to a 12-year-old. Cooper adopted and raised them all as a single mother. If all of that didn't keep her busy enough, her love of learning pushed her to pursue even more education. She began to study for her doctorate at Columbia, more than 25 years after earning her undergraduate degree, so she was in her 50s at the time. Unable to meet their residency requirement, she transferred her credits to the University of Paris, which meant that she had to learn French well enough to write her entire dissertation in French, and she earned her doctorate in 1925 at the age of 66. She retired from teaching at the M Street School in 1930 at the age of 72, but she hardly stopped working. She spent the next 20 years as president of an institution in Washington, D.C. that offered higher education to poor and working class adults, especially African-Americans. She died in 1964 at the age of 105, just months before the Civil Rights Act passed into law. All her life, She encouraged education for all, and maybe especially for girls. About her first school experience when she was denied the classical course, she later wrote, I constantly felt a something from within, unanswered by any beckoning from without. All I ask, she said, is the chance of a seedling, the chance for growth and self-development. The M Street School, where she taught for 30 years, was a highly academic program offering college prep classes. Cooper herself taught Latin and math, but a progressive era movement to limit education for African Americans to voc-ed and technical training threatened the program. This is the era of Booker T. Washington, who was a champion of industrial education for African Americans. For Cooper, industrial education should have been one option among many not the only possible path for African Americans. This happened during the time that she was principal at the school, and so as principal she fought for the preservation of academic and college prep education, knowing that without even the possibility of advanced education, all sorts of opportunities would be closed. She was fired for standing up for this principal. A few years later, a new superintendent rehired her, but only as a teacher, never again as principal. Cooper lived through years of incredible racism, from being born into slavery through Jim Crow, and she was an outspoken voice for rights for African Americans. She spoke of African Americans and Native Americans as having been crushed under the iron heel of Anglo-Saxon power and selfishness. She worked for the right for African American youth to have a full education, and she wrote and worked for what was called racial uplift throughout her life. In addition to fighting against racism in the broader world, Cooper fought sexism within her African-American community and she fought racism within her feminist community. Cooper took black men to task for not taking women seriously as leaders and thinkers. She said, the average man does not believe that black women could throw any light on problems of national import or that she has a word worth hearing. Too many men, she said, want women's education to consist only of that which will leave her possessed of the capacity for worshiping masculinity. In one of her boldest statements, she wrote that educated women who want to marry often have to ask themselves, how shall I so cramp, stunt, simplify, and nullify myself as to make me eligible for the honor of being swallowed up into some little man? Pleading for support and encouragement from African-American men. Cooper asked for permission to be true to the aspirations of my soul without incurring the blight of your censure and ridicule. Not surprisingly, Cooper fought for women's suffrage, the right to vote. But she did not always like her fellow suffragists. She was outspoken in her condemnation of the racist rhetoric sometimes used by white suffragists and warned them that they were hitching their wagons to something much lower than a star if they continued seeing the struggle for women's rights as separate from the struggle for human rights. She severely criticized white suffragists for pitting the claims of suffrage against the real challenges of racism, particularly against African-Americans and Native Americans. For Cooper, all oppression was linked. Cooper wrote that there was no easy way to achieve social justice no panacea or road map. As I see it, she said, the patient persistence of the individual working in truth and loyalty to serve the whole is the only way forward. She lived from the time of slavery to the time of the enactment of the Civil Rights Act and accomplished so much. If she were alive today, I think she would be shocked if there had been an African-American president and that there now is an African-American and Indian-American woman vice president. And I think she would be thrilled, but I think she would be dismayed that so little has changed, that African-Americans are still treated with such disregard in so many aspects of life, that incarceration rates for African-Americans are so high, that police abuse continues, and that so few African-Americans are able to be true to the aspirations of their souls. I think that she would call on us to continue to be persistent in the fight for equal rights working in truth and loyalty she said to serve the whole
2: All right so today we've got Andy with us hey Andy
1: Hey Pat how's it going
2: Good and we're talking about a an important historical figure today who did you who do you have
1: First of all, I just want to say that, like, I had some difficulty picking someone. I wanted to really find someone interesting and and not like a a simple story. And I think mm-hmm. I did find someone with a really interesting story here. And someone who, I mean, he lived 100 years ago, but we see his legacy in culture today. So I'm really excited to talk about it. His name is Marcus Garvey. Have you ever heard of Marcus Garvey?
2: I've heard the name. Uh, I don't think I could recite 10 facts about him right now.
1: So that's actually kind of one of the reasons I picked him. I've come across the name before. I've heard it referenced in music and in movies and stuff, but I don't really know who he is. And so I decided I wanted to learn a little more.
2: Well, so Um, why don't you teach me a little more about Marcus Garvey?
1: Happy to. Um, So Marcus Garvey was not born in America. He was born in Jamaica in 1887 and uh he moved to harlem in around 1916 he did a little bit of traveling before that but he moved to harlem in in 1916 which is right around the time of you know world war one is going on in europe and in harlem the black culture in harlem was really kind of taking off at that time and he became he he gained a lot of notoriety uh in fact Got the nickname Black Moses by being a, uh, a, a absolutely fantastic, tremendous orator, and I have a little clip of one of his speeches uh, that I'm going to share here.
6: Cool.
4: If the white man has the idea of a white god, let him worship his god as he desires. We have found a new ideal because whilst our god has no color. And yet, it is human to see everything through one's own spectacles. And since the white people have seen their God through their white spectacles, we have only now started to see our God through our own spectacles. But we believe in the God of Ethiopia, the everlasting God, God of Father, God of Son, God of Holy Ghost, the one God of all ages. That is the God in whom we believe. But we shall worship him through the spectacles of Ethiopia. For 250 years, we have struggled under the burden and rigors of slavery. We were maimed, we were brutalized, we were ravaged in every way. We are men. We have hopes, we have passions, we have feelings, we have desires, just like any other race. The cry is raised all over the world of Canada, for the Canadians, of America, for the Americans, of England, for the English, of France, for the French, of Germany, for the Germans. Do you take it unreasonably? We, the blacks of the world, should raise the cry of Africa, for the Africans? Yeah. We are not going to be a race without a country. God never intended it, and so we are not going to abuse God's confidence in us as men. We are men, human beings, capable of the same acts as any other race. Possessing under first circumstances the same intelligence as any other race. Now Africa's been sleeping, not dead, only sleeping. Today Africa's walking around not only on our feet, but on our brains. You can enslave what was done for 300 years, the bodies of men. You can tackle the hands of men. You can tackle the feet of men. You can imprison the bodies of men. But you cannot shackle or imprison the minds of men.
1: Hmm.
2: So, I mean, just right off the rip, he's, he's got a strong theological argument there
1: he does he's a super controversial figure he, so he's um he's a big guy um he was tall he was heavy set and he wore like on a regular basis wore like these elegant elaborate like royal garb like m- dress military uniform stuff with big fancy hats and epaulets and stuff he he was really very Catching, he had this kind of heavy Jamaican accent that you can hear uh, tapped into a lot of religious senses sensibilities. There, uh-huh. you
2: mentioned you mentioned that he's controversial. Can you can you clue me into what what's controversial?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So he um, he's largely self educated. He rose to fame as like this activist, and he founded an organization called the Universal Negro Improvement Association or UNIA. And through that and through his, I guess, loudspeaker of that organization, he really butted heads a lot with W.E.B. Du Bois. Du Bois promoted this, like, kind of uh integration and, and almost assimilation into white culture um for, for black Americans. He wanted to see kind of the black and white communities just kind of merge.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Garvey wasn't really having that. He was, he talked about, um, being proud to be black and promoted a message of, of kind of self-separation, um, and, and even to the degree of promoting racial purity, which actually is really what got him into, uh, some controversial waters because it took him to the point where he actually, um, like officially agreed with or endorsed the KKK in that regard, in regards to like racial purity. And, oh, interesting. Um, huh. Yeah, and and to the point where he tried to make some sort of a deal with them, and it's a little, I'm a little unclear on the details here, but basically he tried to work with them to um to have black people taken out of America and taken back to Africa. Um.
2: Wow. Um. That's yeah, was an interesting a, take.
1: Well, and, and it wasn't a fringe take. It was wildly popular. Millions and millions of people supported him and supported that, that, and I'm talking about black people who wanted that. In fact, so the conflict between these two got so tense. So Du Bois called, um, Garvey once the most dangerous enemy of the Negro race in America. And Garvey, in turn, like frequently Talked about that Du Bois was an agent of the white elites. Um, it was kind of nasty. So, um, the thing is with Marcus Garvey, then there's one more kind of controversial thing. So at the end of around World War I in, in 1920, 21, 22, he starts this shipping company, I guess, called, um, the Black Star Line. And the goal was to literally this shipping line commercial transport would take black people to Africa. It never came to fruition, though. They bought like a couple ships, but they were always in the the maintenance costs were too high. And then pretty quickly, he and a lot of the high ups in that company got um, in, in a lot of big trouble for fraud, for mail fraud. And Garvey was actually jailed and then later deported. He eventually died in 1940 in London. In the mean, in that time, he would do some speaking and stuff. He was still kind of well known, but he definitely had lost a lot of his, um, following. Hmm. Um, uh, so
2: prior, prior to his arrest, he was very influential, but after his arrest, he was less of an influential figure. Yeah.
1: There was a little bit of a fall from grace, but not that much. Um, and in fact, in, in roughly like the nineties, in, uh, his message has been not so much he himself, although, you know, they reference him because it was his message, but people talk about a lot of the things that he taught and it's taken on. Um, if you've ever heard the term pan Africanism, it's this, Mm. it's like the, the red, black, and green colors, um, black pride, basically black people being very proud about, their skin color and their heritage and all of this stuff. It's always been, he's always had a very strong, being Jamaican, he's always had a very strong appeal with reggae artists. Um, but in like the 90s and 2000s, a lot of rappers really took to his message as well. Hmm. And so you start to see references to him or to the Black Star line pop up in tons and tons of reggae and rap. Um, in fact, to the point where I went ahead and made a playlist on Spotify, which I will link in the doobly-doo with a ton of music inspired by Marcus Garvey in some way. And I'll keep adding to it. So check it out. It's kind of cool to see the, the legacy of someone. It's one of those things where kind of if you know, you know.
2: That's just wild that he, uh, wound up agreeing with the KKK that, um, (laughs) you know, that they should, return to Africa, that's, I mean, if I was to say that in public today, if I posted that to my Facebook, like I would be immediately ostracized.
1: Right. Right. So it's one of those things that like right now in today's like climate, like a hundred years later, that is a, not a, not a, not a great take. Um, that would not be a good look.
2: Yeah. I don't, I don't think that's a great take
1: going, but think, thinking back a hundred years ago and, and even, I mean, before the Civil War in the antebellum period, there was, um, you know, a lot of the calls in the North for ending slavery also included a and kick them out of America clause. Wow. A lot some people like Abraham Lincoln, that was his campaign stance when he ran in, in 64, 1864 was, abolition of slavery and sending them to Africa. There was a term for it, and I can't think of it right now, but.
0: Mini fact check. Although the Back to Africa movement was considered a failure overall, it did result in the formation of three countries populated by former slaves, Haiti, Liberia, and Sierra
1: Leone. Mini fact check. Well, like, we're running a little was, bit short on time. Yeah, but, but um, I just want you know that is the fact that it feels so cringy to us right now is a result of another hundred years of of sophistication and and enlightenment, and we still have a long way to go. But we we look at things differently. But at the time, that was a very popular and widely held view. That's
2: crazy. Thank you for your time, and uh, thank you for bringing light to Marcus Garvey.
1: Yeah, and just really quick, one last thing, one little line. So you know Bob Marley, you know the song Redemption Song? Yes. So the, the one of the best lyrics from that comes from Marcus Garvey's speech, and I'm going to read Marcus Garvey's speech and let you go listen to the song and, uh, and and listen for these words. We are going to emancipate ourselves from mental slavery, because whilst others might free the body, None but ourselves can free the mind. Mind is your only ruler, sovereign. The man who is not able to develop and use his mind is bound to be the slave of the other man who uses his mind. And that is uh that was from a speech in 1937 that Bob Marley used as source material.
6: Wow.
2: So, like, I've heard of Marcus Garvey, like, without even hearing Marcus Garvey. He's just, mm-hmm. like, a part of the culture. Yep. Wow. All right, well, yeah, for th- thanks for sharing that with us.
6: Okay, bye. Bye.
2: Okay, we have another interview lined up. I've got Michael with us today. He has. He's a friend of the pod. He's been on a couple of episodes with us, our Black Lives Matter episode and our education episode. Welcome back, Michael.
6: Thank you. Glad to be back.
2: And so today our topic is we're talking about maybe lesser appreciated or lesser known important figures from black American history. Um, and we asked you to find somebody. Did you have any success in finding somebody you want to talk about today?
6: I did. I actually did. This man is a kind of a hero of mine. And I, I guess he's black history as well as black present. As he's still alive and, uh, but he's done some, some, sub, some substantial work, uh, relating to the issues of Black America. And I awesome. think he's somebody who should really be highlighted. That's great. So, uh, what's his name? His name is Dr. Ronald Ferguson. He is an economist and a professor at Harvard University. Wow. He is an economist who researches factors that affect educational achievement, and his major themes include race-related achievement gap, and that's a big thing in the educational system right now, uh, how to improve schools and identify effective teachers. He has researched for over three decades, uh, focused on reducing the economic and educational disparities in our system.
2: That sounds like a really worthy cause. So what, what drew you to Mr. Ferguson?
6: Well, I, I think I first heard about him when he did a study. He goes across the country to studies suburban diverse school systems. And he, um, came to Shaker Heights oh. and that's what first brought him to my attention. And I think they didn't like what he found, you know, Shaker. Has often been seen, uh, seen like the promised land and school systems hmm. around Cuyahoga County, at least they used to be. And, uh, he found, you know, like in other school systems, there was a disparity in the achievement of the population of color and their white students. Hmm. And I, I especially like, uh, this man because he's a Clevelander. He was born and raised right here in Cleveland. He was born in 1950 and he attended John F. Kennedy high school here. Wow. So he,
2: he's still around. So it's, it's possible we could maybe for a future podcast, we could track him down and try to talk to him.
6: Oh, that's kind of cool. Possibly. He is a, uh, he was educated uh, his undergraduate is from Cornell and he has a PhD from MIT, but so he's a bad mamma jamma.
2: Yeah. So, so when he found this disparity in shaker schools, so it wasn't a problem of representation in the population. It was a, a problem of achievement. Is that Correct.
6: right? Correct. Correct. The achievement gap, uh, basically talks about, uh, historically low income students and students of color have performed less well, uh, than high income students and white students across the board on uh, most measures of academic success. Those things being standardized tests, grades, uh, high school graduation rates, college enrollment, and retention rates, you know, those kind of things. Um, noting that 31% of black children live in poverty versus the 10% of white children, of course that's gonna affect us more. Um black boys are placed in special ed classes at so like three times the rate of their white counterparts. Um he you know, he challenges all those things. And he had um some of his peers throughout history have been people like um John Ogbu, who was an African-born professor at uh Berkeley University. And uh he actually said that that the achievement gap was because of cultural behavior. Uh, in other words, th- things like African Americans mocking uh, their peers when they work hard and calling them, you know, acting white, things like that. And while that dynamic does exist, to the degree Dr. Agbu stated, it, it almost sounded like blaming the victim. And then, of course, there was uh the bell curve uh co-founded by Charles Murray, who suggested and this one infuriates me. he suggested that the achievement gap existed because of an inherited low intelligence ooh
2: inherited yeah, so that
6: yeah. That harkens
2: back to like the, the eugenics and all the messy mm-hmm. science that we,
6: yeah, the Darwinism, most, all that. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Most liberal education today kind of looks at those ideas like with a lot of stigma. Like you can't, you can't really <laughs> publish those papers anymore. And I think for good reason.
6: Thank goodness. Right. 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 So I appreciate this man so much because he's refuting those issues and really you know because he's a trained economist he quantifies things and he presents things in numerical data as opposed to maybe emotional uh and biased things so that you know not that stats can't be biased but he presents things in a way from what i've seen of him on youtube and heard of him in different districts so that people can hear them and maybe digest them and move forward in trying to close this achievement gap, he is like the country's expert on the achievement gap. Mm.
2: So, so, um, does he have a, like a, a hypothesis for what is causing this achievement gap? Disparity in income, you mentioned?
6: Yeah, part of it is, um, part of it is the disparity in income, part of it, is- also deals with some cultural things. Um, you look at black families as a whole, or I should say in general, don't have the academic wherewithal to pass on to and to teach their children as majority white families. He's done studies like, say, the number of books in homes. You know, African-American home, even in the suburbs, may have... Twenty percent of them may have a hundred or more books in their uh, library, whereas eighty percent of white families may mm-hmm. have that. In, in Shaker, we found that I can't remember; it was less than fifty percent of African American families had four-year degrees, whereas ninety percent of white families had four-year degrees. Mm-hmm. So when you know when you're sitting around the table, you know, I look at my family. We sit around the table. My wife and I both have master's degrees, but we can talk to our child about opportunities and how to reach them. Let's make a plan and all that because we've been there. A lot of my students I deal with are first generation college students. So they don't even have the, the, the parental background or some of them, like no one in their whole community has a college education. I mean, so, you know, I'm not saying that's a bad thing or judging people for not or even that it's absolutely necessary for everyone to have a college education. No, I'm not saying that. But for those students who do want to go on and get one, some of them don't have some place to get that, that knowledge from, that intrinsic knowledge, the wherewithal, the soft skills it takes to, you know, move on.
2: So if we were looking to, uh, you know, work on this problem, what, what would, uh, like help alleviate some of this achievement gap, do you think?
6: Well, I, I think studying the research of people like Ron Ferguson and finding out what his suggestions are to close that gap, uh, for instance, not that money solves everything, but money can be a crucial thing in getting some basic needs let me give you an an example Uh, I had a student at my church who was uh, she was failing math, she needed help of course I was a math teacher I said of course I'll help you I said I need you to get the book so I can see what topics you're going through and yada 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 do you know she couldn't get a book Hmm. they only this was Cleveland Metropolitan Schools they only had a book a classroom set of books, and kids couldn't take books home. So the mother even went in to explain to the principal that yeah, she has a tutor, she needs books book so the tutor can see what she's doing. Because certainly, you know, you don't expect a child who's failing math to say, oh, we're doing uh, squares and trinomials. But still, she couldn't get a book. So even something that Simple, like every child having a book of their own <laughs> would be helpful. You, you look at some schools who have centers for the, the college uh, centers where they have a dedicated staff just for students applying to college. I and mean, we have that at Cleveland Heights. We have a uh, career resource center and the staff there help the students sit down. How do you apply to college? Help them write essays and there's a tremendous amount of resources there versus other schools districts who don't have that. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the way Ohio, I think I mentioned this on the last broadcast, it is, it was deemed unconstitutional over 20 years ago, the way Ohio funded schools. Um, because you've got districts like Cleveland, East Cleveland, who was one among the poorest in the country and they can afford some basic things the children need, whereas you have other districts that have all kinds of supplemental services, so that, that gap, that widens the gap. So this man, again, is traveling around the country, examining that, has published all kinds of studies. His studies have been published in the U.S. Department of Education, National Research Council, Brookings Institute, and several other uh, touted institutions.
2: Right. Well, he sounds like a really great example because, like, you know, not everybody gets into, like, statistical analysis and research and, like, being a, you know, from a science-based perspective. He sounds like a really good uh, role model for, I mean, for me, for for anyone.
6: Right. And based on the fact that he's, you know, Harvard's uh, staff is only 4.8% black. So he's one of the 4.8%. He's also the senior lecturer in education and public policy. So so for a man from Cleveland, from John F. Kennedy, to rise to that level is just incredible.
2: Wow. Yeah, it sounds like he's got a really impressive background.
6: Yes, sir. Yes, he does. And I look forward to his continuing study of that. One of the things to go back to your question about things to improve the achievement gap, there's a nationwide initiative called the Minority Student Achievement Network. And what it is, it's an initiative to try to do things to close the gap. So Cleveland Heights and Shaker Heights schools are the only ones in Ohio who have this program. And we go to national conferences every day where people talk about the gap what to do about it. And we come back enthused and everything. Um, often I've had panel discussions with our students and our faculty on things like uh, what do high-achieving African-American students need or what do African-American students need, period. Uh, we have lunchtime discussions on issues. Uh, we read the book and had discussions on by Jawanza uh to be popular or smart, the Black Peer Group that talks about the the stigma that hardworking black students have to deal with and not fitting into the predominant culture. We also had tutorials. We had uh, orientations and trainings for parents to help them understand how to push their students. You know, the the whole key is, what: why is my black child sitting in the same class as this white child and learning differently? Why is mm-hmm. the average GPA different? Why are the SAT scores a hundred points difference? In the, the average black student and the white students. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that doesn't make sense. And certainly I refute the, uh, theory that some people actually have that we are of lesser intelligence. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but there's got to be something in the system. And, and again, historically we were killed. For t- learning how to read and write and, and while people say oh that was years and years ago it still has an effect you mm-hmm. know from generation to generation so you know people like Dr. Ferguson are on the forefront of saying here are the issues and how do we break down these issues but the first thing like with anything is awareness a lot of people are just not aware that there is this educational disparity and the Mm. importance of closing that gap.
2: Well, maybe we can let some people be aware of that through this podcast. I mean, I I hope we can reach out and get some awareness that way. Well, thank you so much for your time, Michael. And Ronald Ferguson, I'm going to check him out. He uh, sounds like a very dedicated researcher, and that's a very worthy cause.
6: Yes, sir. Most definitely. All right, well, thank you so much, Michael. Good to see you again. All right, Pat, great to see you. All right. Be safe out there.
0: Hey, Pat, how you doing? I'm good, Nathan. How are you? I'm not too bad. I haven't done my interview yet, but I am, like, very excited who I came up with. Uh, Who did you end up choosing? I've
2: got Cook Third Class Doris Miller.
0: (laughs) That sounds... Awesome. Everything about that. I love it.
2: Right. So the first thing that you might notice is that Doris is a female name, a name for girls. Doris Miller is a guy. Um, (laughs) Okay. He was born in 1919, and the midwife that was helping his mom out was absolutely convinced that she was going to have a girl. So they named the baby Doris. And then they just never changed it. <laughs> I'm I'm actually not sure on the details, like why they decided to never change it. But his name is Doris. It's like a boy that's named Sue great. kind of situation. Yeah. yeah, I was thinking the same thing. And then later he became known as Dory to his shipmates because of a typographical error. I think th- that's like the theory is that uh, his name was written out Dory with a e, um, okay, as a mistake, and that that nickname kind of stuck but yeah (laughs) doris miller dory that may
0: have been the kind of mistake that he didn't mind having made that much
2: (laughs) yeah like you could be like well that's just like a new name that nobody's come up with ever (laughs) but yeah so uh the reason that i was attracted to this story he might be a little bit too famous for the purposes of these interviews but at the same time i had never heard of him and i I don't think think i've ever heard of him either a lot of people haven't he was a cook and he was on a ship the uss west virginia on december 7th 1941
0: i feel like i know that date it's infamous somehow
2: right so that's the japanese bombing of pearl harbor so pretty important day to american history so you know picture yourself you're on a ship You're the cook. It says at 8 a.m. He was collecting laundry uh, when the battle stations alarm went off and he went to his post, which was an anti-aircraft gun that he was supposed to help load the magazine for. They have these like giant magazines. He was supposed to help them load. He'd never been trained to shoot one of these things. He goes to his battle station and finds that torpedoes had destroyed his anti-aircraft gun magazine station. Okay. So
0: he, that's not great.
2: So he abandons that he goes to uh, what they call the Times square of the battleship. It's basically just, you know, where a lot of paths cross and he let the officers know that he was available for an assignment. Uh, They sent him to go help lift the captain of the ship who was injured. He helped to move the captain of the ship to safety, and then they sent him to go load ammo for another anti-aircraft gun. While he was there, there was an anti-aircraft gun that had nobody manning it. He hops on the anti-aircraft gun, absolutely no training (laughs) shoots down a bunch of Japanese aircraft the number they're saying is at least two confirmed but it's speculated to be more than that of Japanese warplanes that he shot down that's amazing emptied his magazine completely ran out of ammunition Uh, he was quoted later as saying I think I got one of those planes they were diving pretty close to us uh apologies for the term but that's that's the direct quote that's the terminology that they were using at that time insensitive as that may be but after he ran out of ammunition this huge guy he's like six foot three 200 pounds he had played uh fullback on his high school football team So they sent him to do more of what he had been doing with the captain of taking injured sailors and just getting them out of harm's way, just getting them to safety. So that's what he set about doing until the ship sank. When ships sink, very often they will capsize. And the reason for that is that like, if they're taking on water, they'll get imbalanced and they'll flip completely over. Um, due to some selective flooding of compartments, which was really smart, um, which Miller, I mean, Miller had nothing to do with, but, um, (laughs) they were able to keep the ship from capsizing by selectively flooding certain compartments just to keep the thing up and down while it sank. And a lot of the crew survived and they were able to evacuate a whole bunch of people including Miller, Miller actually survived. Um, In the attack, 132 of the West Virginia's crew were killed and 52 were wounded. And what they said was that undoubtedly Miller was responsible for saving just a whole bunch of people's lives. Wow. Yeah.
0: And And he's he's a cook. cook. He's the cook. Right, he should have been making hash browns.
2: Right. Well, the interesting thing about that is Miller also highlights a couple of the struggles that black servicemen faced in that time. So the first one is when he went to sign up for a job, one of the only jobs that was available to a black enlisted man was cook. So that's the job that he took. And then afterwards, the Navy had a whole bunch of commendations that they did for sailors for their bravery during december 7th mm-hmm. and so they had all of the white enlisted men's names and you know they had commendations for all of them and then they had a commendation for an unnamed black man <sighs> i'm not sure that's this is- like that's like a punch
0: to the gut that's terrible
2: I know. So, I mean, maybe this is giving them too much credit. I don't know if that's because they didn't know who he was or because they specifically were trying not to commend him. I'm Do not... you know, was that, was that ever
0: corrected? Did
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So, the, so the NAACP picks up on this story of commended unnamed black sailor, and they go to FDR and they petition for him to be given the Navy Cross. And then a a representative and a senator, two congressmen, also introduced legislation to give this guy a medal. So it took two newspapers. The Associated Press wound up citing the Pittsburgh Courier, which was a Black-run newspaper, Black-American-run newspaper, for identifying Miller as the unnamed Black sailor. And then after that, Miller was awarded the Navy Cross for extraordinary heroism in combat with an armed enemy force. That's like the name of the the medal. So sadly, less than two years later, Miller would perish in the sinking of the ship the Liscombe Bay in the Gilbert Islands operation of the Pacific Theater in the war. After his death, he's been the subject of numerous commemorations and memorials. He got a Purple Heart a nine-foot bronze statue of himself in his hometown. He was portrayed in 2001's Pearl Harbor by Cuba Gooding Jr. And actually, he had a oh. ship named after him, the USS Miller. But the Pearl Harbor thing, the the movie, is the reason why I kind of thought, like, eh, you know, this guy is it already was, pretty famous. It was famous. not a great
0: movie, uh, so I think your tribute is probably appropriate.
2: But I I was just so enthralled with this story, and I feel like you know maybe you know I had never heard of him before starting this research. I think maybe a lot of young people haven't heard of him. He's not like you know Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, or Harriet Tubman or Rosa Parks. So he you know I feel like any signal boost.
0: Absolutely no. I I think this is exactly the kind of person we want to uh, elevate and. I'm not sure a terrible uh Ben Affleck movie from <laughs> 2001 got the job done.
2: Right. But yeah, just incredibly brave guy had signed up and was only supposed to be there as a cook and just like found an empty anti-aircraft gun, had no training and decided, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to shoot this anti-aircraft gun. Just like incredibly brave and I mean, fortunately he was commended for all that, but um tragically still lost his life serving his country though like i mean well, that's... that's a pretty good life lived if you're gonna if you're gonna go out i mean he did so very honorably
0: well here's to uh, ship's cook third class uh, doris dory miller uh that's a great choice
2: thank you i i've uh, not spoilers or anything but i've heard that your choice is pretty cool too
0: well hopefully people don't like just hear your segment and then be like well i've heard enough and then turn off the podcast so hey nathan hey there how have the other interviews been going
1: pretty good pretty good how about yours
0: pat seemed to know what he was talking about and uh it went really well so far um i'm very excited to talk about my person
1: yeah? Um, who Who is your person?
0: Well, we are going to be talking about Robert Smalls today. And I think some people know about him, but he's still one of those people that some people know very little about his life. And he did just a ridiculous amount of stuff. So I just want to try and fly by a lot of that stuff. But I'm definitely going to suggest people check out their local library for <laughs> additional information.
1: Sure. Do a little more digging after this episode.
0: Oh, there's just so much. Because... I did this because there's one very, very incredibly cool story about Robert Smalls, but it turns out there's so much more than that. So I'll, I'll just jump into it. So Robert Smalls was born in Buford, South Carolina in 1839. His mom was a slave and a laborer. Her name was Lydia Polite. I'm going to take a shot in the dark and say a white person gave her that last name. Robert's dad is unknown, but it's thought by many that His dad was actually his owner, Henry McKee. He lived on their plantation until the age of 12, at which point Henry McKee, potentially his dad, (laughs) sent him off to Charleston as a -a rent-a-slave. Rent-a-slaves were basically where you would send your slave off, they would get a job, and then their wages would be sent back to the slave
1: owner. So I mean, that's pretty horrifying without the possible dad bit.
0: Yeah, it's not. It's not great, but it's thought that it, it's hard to say because a lot of this stuff, the minutiae of this stuff is so intricate. And I've read a bunch of stuff and watched a bunch of stuff and things like that. But there are some who think that if Henry was his dad, that he thought that this was a way to give his son some skills that for him to go out and like actually get a job instead of being stuck on the plantation. Hmm. I have no idea if that's true. We don't even know if it is if he was his dad or not.
1: That but is an interesting there's a, take. Lot of,
0: there's a lot of speculation around uh, Robert Smalls, but Robert gets a job on a side wheel steamer boat. So I think you you've probably seen him before in like cartoons and stuff. Where there's one giant wheel on one side of the boat that keeps on turning, and that's how the boat is moved. Uh, it's called the USS Planter. And as time passes, Robert starts out as a normal laborer, but they find out that he's smart, and ultimately he ends up progressing to become the wheelman or the pilot for the ship. He nice. ended up, so the Planter, when the Civil War starts, ends up getting dragooned in and becomes a Confederate ship, essentially. But Robert already knows how to pilot the thing. He's already been working on the thing for, I believe, seven years at this point. And so they keep him on as the wheelman. I'm not really sure when to squeeze this tidbit of information in, but he also marries a wonderful woman named Annie Wig, and they have two children together while he's working on this ship. There's a little piece of information. Robert had to send all his money back, or probably his the ship sent all his money back to Henry McKee, but Henry thinking he's being nice, lets him keep $1 a week. And so Robert ends up taking that money and buying like chocolate and tobacco and things like that and selling them on the dock. And he keeps every little bit of money. He can he scrimps and saves every penny he can Wow! in hopes of buying his wife and his children's freedom, which is Amazing, but doesn't really have much to do with the story, especially from what you're about to hear. So Robert ended up being excellent in navigation. He knew the waterways in and out, and the crew came to trust him possibly and definitely more than they should have. He was very observant. Because they trusted him, they would leave him often in charge of the ship. So these Confederate sailors would leave him on the ship by himself when they went back into town to get drunk and hire prostitutes and things like that. And they often wouldn't return until the next morning. So one very dark night, Robert decides to enact this plan that he's been working on for quite a while. Oh, And basically what he does, he steals the ship. (laughs) Oh! So he and a couple other rent-a-slaves, I believe. It's hard to find information about the other slaves that were on board the ship. But he and the other slaves on, on the ship end up taking the ship. And they go down river a little bit and are able to collect their families because they had worked this out ahead of time. The problem is, so there's this blockade at the port of Charleston and Robert knows that he and the other people on the boat are going to be free and clear. They'll be be free if they can get past the blockade. The problem is between where they are and the blockade, there are five different Confederate checkpoints. And the way these Confederate checkpoints worked is the captain goes out and waves to the people at these checkpoints and they uh, toot a very specific uh, tune on their horn, I guess. And so there's a Confederate code book that is supposed to be carried by the captain at all times, except for the captain wanted to get drunk and was pretty horny that night. So he left the code book (laughs) on the ship. (laughs) And so Robert's been doing this for years. And so He's able to use this code book to toot toot exactly the way the captain would. And because it's really dark, he puts on the captain's cap and his confederate coat and goes out and tries to mimic the body language of the captain as best he can. And they're able to get past all five of these checkpoints by doing this like ridiculous exercise, but he's able to do it. They get to the blockade. And the problem is at the time of the blockade, when they get there, it's dawn And so instead of looking like a silhouette in a Confederate uniform who's waving at them, there's a bunch of slaves on this ship that's trying to run the blockade. And by the time the Confederate soldiers at the blockade are able to figure out what happened and start firing cannons at the ship, it's already too late. The uh, USS Planter is already outside of their range. There's a problem, though, because the Planter is now... Steaming full speed towards the USS Augusta, which is a Union ship, and so the Union ship, all they see is a Confederate, oh. a Confederate boat flying a Confederate flag, heading straight for them. So what they end up doing is they lower the Confederate flag and raise a bedsheet that Annie had brought with her, with the other stuff, as a sign. It's a white bedsheet as a sign of surrender, and they roll up to the ship, and Robert says. Good morning, sir. I brought you some of the old United States guns, sir. And that's how he and his family and these other slaves became free.
1: That is an amazing story.
0: It's incredible. And you know how I said, so that was the story I planned on telling during this segment, but I did some research and oh my goodness. So there's a bunch of different stuff. So first of all, he's given $1,500 as uh, compensation for what he went through and bringing them the ship because the union needed additional ships, especially specifically this uh, side wheel steamer ship. They specifically needed ships like that. Nice. So it was very helpful to them. But in addition, they asked him to stay on. They ask him to keep on working uh, for the union. And so he stays on and eventually becomes the captain of the planter. And, He's the first black captain of a U.S. ship, period. Nice. Um, the, the interesting thing, and I wasn't able to find a lot of information about this, but apparently there is one point where the planter is being attacked and the white captain at the time wouldn't do anything about it. At this point, Robert is not the captain yet, and he basically takes over for this white captain who won't do anything and saves everybody, and that's how he ends up getting control of the ship once and for all. Other things that he did, so he went back to South Carolina and became a congressman in South Carolina during Reconstruction. Uh, He helped set up one of the first free school systems in the United States. While he was part of that, he served in the U.S. House of Representatives for five terms until Reconstruction was over when basically they kicked out all of the Black representatives out of government completely because, you know, this is the United States and we're terrible. Other fun things he did, he met with Abraham Lincoln and convinced him and other members of Congress to allow black soldiers to join the union. So he was this huge celebrity at the time because everybody had heard this story because it's amazing, right? Yeah. And so he goes around rec- recruiting black soldiers and the numbers are hard to tell, like, why did, why did this person join and why did that person join? But because of his efforts over 115,000 black soldiers end up joining the union. And it's thought by many that that is the number of soldiers that allowed the union to ultimately win because they, they wouldn't have had the, the bodies to, to do it. Otherwise another fun fact, once he got some money, he moved back to South Carolina and bought the plantation. He'd grown up on
1: <laughs> nice.
0: So Henry McKean has been dead for a few years now. His mother, unfortunately, had also passed away. But you know who is still alive? Henry McKean's widow. And so what he does as an incredible act of kindness, and there might be some spite thrown in there, I don't know, he lets her live on the property until she <laughs> passes away. She lives on the property for, with his family for the rest of her life. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, just like I'm i am leaving out so many different things. Um, But he was an incredible man, and I think – one of these figures that we should all be proud as hell to have in our past. Like one yeah. of these American figures that I am extremely proud to have. But anyway, that Robert Smalls American hero. I I am, I love this guy so much and I'm definitely going to do more research into him because uh, he is, I mean, he just kept on working and working. The thing is after he moved back to South Carolina, he also hired multiple tutors for himself because he had not been given a proper education. He wanted to learn how to read. He wanted to learn how to write. He wanted to learn how to do math and science and all this stuff. And he would like teach his children all this stuff as well. Like it was incredible. It was one of the reasons why he helped set up this free school system. I, like I said, there's so much different stuff <laughs> that he's amazing for. But I think uh, my time is probably like up and then some.
1: <laughs> no, he sounds uh, like an amazing guy and and maybe uh... – Maybe one day you can take us through a full length episode about them.
0: Oh, man. Well, yes. We'll, we'll see.
1: <laughs> awesome. All
0: right, All right. Well, thanks, Andy.
1: Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Peace. Ciao. up stuff ahead. This
3: is your content warning.
0: Your content warning. So don't say that you were wrong. Hey there, I just wanted to give you a quick content warning. In this next story, there's a graphic description of the death of a man through means of extreme violence. It made me uncomfortable, and I'm sure it will make you uncomfortable too. I think that discomfort is probably a good thing, but I wanted you to know about it ahead of time. So, away we go.
1: I'm here with... Uh... Friend of mine from all the way back, I mean, I think all the way back to kindergarten, um, yep. Billy Fitch, right? Back at Canterbury. Yep. And Billy jumped on because he really wanted to talk about uh, something from history that is not really talked about a lot, which is uh, do you want to tell? Uh, go ahead.
7: Yeah. So, um, what my favorite part, well, not really my favorite part, but a story I found most interesting with Black history in America. Um, is the story of Beulah May Donald and her son, Michael Donald, who her son was the last person lynched by the KKK in uh Alabama. Now, when you first hear that, you might think, okay, this happened in, you know, maybe, you know, 1930, 1940. This actually happened in 1981. So to begin the story off, it, it, Michael was hanging out with his brother. He leaves his brother's house and he starts to walk home it's an Alabama night. So if you ever lived in the South, you know, it's hot, it's muggy. So, you know, it's a comfortable walk home. And uh on his walk home, he sees a car, it pulls up next to him and uh these two white guys in the car say, Hey um, buddy, can, can you come over here? Uh We need some directions. So Michael not thinking anything about it goes over to the car and they're like, Hey, have you heard of this club? Can you tell us how to get there? And you know, He's like, sure, I, I can tell you, you know, you go down here, you make this right. And as he's giving them directions, the passenger uh, person in the passenger seat pulls out a gun and tells him to get in the car. Now, at this point, Michael doesn't know what's going on. He gets in the car at gunpoint. He's begging. He's pleading for his life. And uh, at this point, he doesn't know what's going to happen to him. But l- let's back up a little bit. Let's talk about the two guys. So. What had happened that day was a black man was on trial for having killed a police officer. Now, the jury had came back that there wasn't enough evidence to convict or charge the black man, so he got off free. Um, that angered the KKK, specifically the Alabama portion of the uh, United Clans of America. So these two members, after getting all riled up, talking to the other members, talking about, well, if a black man can get away with killing a white man, what is this country coming to? Mind you, this man was probably someone just in the wrong place at the wrong time. There was no evidence. There was no corroboration. He, he just happened to be on trial because that's all they had. And he was found not guilty. So these two guys uh, th- were so mad. They said, you know what? Tonight, we're going to go find a black man and we're going to kill him. So that brings us back to the point of Michael being in the car. He's crying. He's begging for his life. And he almost gets away. He manages to fight his way free. He starts running. One of the guys catches him. Now, um, I want to uh, notate this. You notice I'll just call them those guys. Those guys, I know their names. I'm not going to give them any history. I'm not going to give them any credit. There's no reason, in my opinion, to ever memorialize any of those people. So you can look it up. You can read the story for yourself. But needless to say, these guys catch up to him, and when they catch up to him, they're so angry that he even dared to try to escape. They beat him with the tree branch. They hit him with the tree branch hundreds of times. Now, I I play baseball and swing the bat over and over and over again. That's a lot of energy. That's a lot of exertion. You get tired. Just imagine beating a man to death with a tree branch. Then after the beating. They proceeded to stomp his face, strangle him with a rope, and then just to make sure that it all was complete, they slit his throat ear to ear just to make sure there was no chance of him surviving. So this already sounds bad. This is already terrible. You know, your heart obviously goes out for Michael. Mind you, Michael's only 19 years old, barely started his life just becoming a man, especially a black man in America. Okay. So they proceed to take his body to one of the KKK leaders. They string him up in his backyard and they have a party all night long, swinging his dead body. People bring over cakes. They have dessert. They bring beer. They're having a good time, a bonfire. Then they take his body down and they hang it up in a multiracial neighborhood. Now, mind you, Beulah May Donald Michael's mother has been waiting up for her son all night long. She's literally been sitting by the door. She's called her other son. Like, Hey, is Michael still there? What's going on? He's like, he left a little before midnight. She's wringing her hands. She's drinking coffee after coffee. Cause she can't go back to sleep. Um, when she did go to sleep, she had a horrible nightmare of a coffin, and she's just having a horrible night. And then she gets notification that, Hey, we found Michael's wallet. So she's thinking, oh, my God, he, you know, he's still alive. He must have lost his wallet. He must be out looking for it. You know, it's OK. But then they have to give her the bad news. No, Michael's not still alive. Uh, in fact, we need you to come with us because just a few blocks away is his body. So she has to go and identify his body, which she does. And she thinks back to Emmett Till's mother. What happened to Emmett Till? And she, decide, she decides in the same way that Emmett's Still mother would, that she would have an open casket to show everybody what exactly was happening to black people in America, what exactly they had to deal with. Of course, the police investigation goes nowhere. They pick up a couple crackheads, junkies. Um, obviously, they had nothing to do with it. They weren't involved. Everyone knew it was the KKK. It's not like the KKK was hidden. I mean, the members were blatantly KKK members and um the police didn't want to do anything so beulah may uh got it all she got with her councilman she got with civil rights activists they got the fbi involved now mind you this murder happened in 1981 so the police said we don't have any leads we're, we're done with it got it escalated to the fbi it took the fbi two years to get the two men to confess okay They had to go through a crafty means. It's a great story. You should look it up. Read it for yourself. You know, uh, history.com has a great article about it. New York Times has a great article about it. But it's a great story. But eventually, they get them to admit, you know, that what they had done. One of the men was sentenced to life. One of the men was sentenced to death. Actually, the first white man to be sentenced to death for the death of a black man. And you would think that this is where the story would end. But Beulah May would not accept this as justice. She was okay. She was fine with the punishment that the two men had received, but she felt that there were way more people involved than just those two guys. So there needed to be a precedent set that these actions would no longer be tolerated in America. So she then, in 1984, so this is three years after the murder, She got the help of those same civil rights activists. She got some civil rights lawyers, both white and black, to file a civil suit against the United Klans of America. They wanted to hold them liable for the death of her son because those two members were members of the organization and they wanted to prove that, hey, the organization actually incited them to these actions. It was in court for three years. It was a hard battle. And even though they gave Bella May an all white jury, which mind you, in the justice system is supposed to be a jury of your peers, but you have an all white jury for the racist murder of a black man. But miracles happen and they found the KKK guilty. She was awarded $7 million, which officially bankrupted the KKK, the United clans of america the whole organization was bankrupted. they had to hand over the deed to their headquarters in tuscaloosa and that wasn't enough to cover the seven million dollars so then they garnished the property and the wages of all of the leadership in the the group so they were effectively became homeless they lost so much of their income it was the biggest blow to the kkk that had ever been dealt since their origination in the 1800s. That's why the KKK is still around, but it's not as big as it used to be all because of Beulah May Donald. Um, and it, it's amazing that she took it that far because most people would have stopped. Most people, you know, my son's murderers are brought to justice. I'm happy. I'm I'm not happy, but you know, I'm going to let it go. We're going to move on. She fought tooth and nail. And then not a year later, Viola May passed away. That's all she had pushing her on was to get justice for her son. And she finally could could pass away. So I I love that story. And and in fact, I I discovered it by accident. This isn't something that was on TV or we learned in school. I just happened to stumble across it and I thought it was a great story.
1: How did you stumble across it? Where did you find it?
7: So, uh, have you seen the meme, uh, of the black man beating up the uh, KKK member? Yes. Yeah. So, uh, I was, I was trying to find that meme, uh, to send to somebody because I thought it was hilarious. Um, and in looking for that meme, I, I put, you know, black person kicks KKK's ass. And so what, what popped up was, uh-huh. the story. That's,
1: so, that's exactly what she did. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh,
7: that's how I discovered it. And, and I just thought it, it was such a great story. And, and it, it was just so relevant
1: mm-hmm. because
7: it was 30 some years ago. Yeah, forty years, forty years this year.
1: Yeah, man, wow. So why do you think that that story is so overlooked? I mean, why is that not something that's taught in schools or you know um, talked about all the time?
7: So this is just my thoughts, but public education isn't meant to educate. Okay, if you notice in Black History Month in, in public schools, typically. They only tell stories of Black heroes with tragic endings. Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, um, you know, uh, anybody who fought for freedoms, anybody who fought for civil rights typically has a bad end. And we're supposed to, you know, that, and this isn't to diminish anything that they did because they were great men. They were heroes, you know, for American people as well as the Black community. But, they hold these stories almost to to push us down to say, "Hey, if you speak out, this could happen to you." Yeah, that they, they were able to be history that you know they're hmm. taught about, you're learned about. But look where it got them. Specifically it got them because
1: the these guys were assassinated, it takes on a more threatening aura.
7: I mean, how many? How many? Uh, people in civil rights history do you know that one that got out of it alive that you know survived her- Harriet Tubman I mean beside her everybody else lynched you know gunned down killed e- even the white people that fought for civil rights the famous people that we learned to fought for civil rights typically end up dying for fighting for those civil rights it- it's a means of control it's a means to say hey these are your rights You can fight for them, but these are the stories we're going to tell you about, that if you do, it could end up bad. So so it kind of makes you want to say, okay, you know what? I fight for my rights, but I'll do it in my little corner over here. I'll make my little space over here. I'll try to make this better, but I don't want that spotlight. I don't want that public eye. I don't want to cause too many waves because I don't want to end up like they did. So but that's just my personal opinion. You know, I could be wrong, but that's where my train of thought takes me.
1: All right. Well, do you have any final thoughts that you want to share with the audience?
7: Uh, have a good Black History Month. Um and I, you know, Black History Month is for black people, but I think of it more as American History Month. Now, and, and as Andy will, will tell you, I am not a prideful USA citizen. I'm I'm not a political person really. I'm not you know, one of those, you know, patriotic people. But I feel like that Black History Month is really the most American remembrance that we can do because it was the minorities that built this country in, in reality. So whether you be Black, Native American, Chinese, Asian, everybody, aside from white people, were brought over mostly against their will or they were brought over under false pretenses. They were given promises of what would happen and what opportunities there were. In reality, those opportunities were there, but not for the minorities. So I I think it's great that we reflect on that and that we learn about it. But I think we also need to look for like the good and realize that even though, you know, it supposedly happened such a long time ago, I think we need to realize that we still have a long way to go for everybody to be
0: equal. Well, no one can say that wasn't an episode because it definitely was
1: It was a a roller coaster of an episode. Yeah. Highs and lows.
2: I mean, there was tragedy, there was uplifting stories, there were war stories. There was humor,
0: there was action, there was justice, there was uh, just a mountain of injustice.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, the, the problem with justice is you need to have had something happen to you to get justice for. Yeah. And boy, howdy, was there a lot of that. But no, I, like, yeah, it's like, I I can't thank enough Michael and Maggie and Billy and Lolita. I just think that we mm-hmm. had some great guests talking about some very important Americans that like most of which I'd never heard of before at all like I right. think like one exception was like Pat when we were talking and you mentioned that uh the terrible Pearl Harbor movie uh had Cuba Gooding Jr. in it I was like oh yeah that was like the one person I'd heard of
2: I'm going to have to go back and watch it because I I didn't realize that, um, you know, Doris Miller had, you know, a huge part in that movie. (laughs) I haven't seen it.
0: One, I will say, so we talked about this a little bit after my interview ended, but uh, I was the one who came up with the idea for this episode. Not that I was like the instrumental one in making it happen, but the reason why I came up with the episode in the first place was Robert Small's story because I I'd, I'd heard about him before and his story just seemed so incredible to me and I think that is true of virtually everybody we heard about today I just I was floored I I thought it turned out well I think we need to revisit this again because I'm going to go ahead and say there's probably more than six little known black heroes in American history Well yeah. and and you said like
2: Robert Smalls we should do a like feature film on robert Falls. like i absolutely would watch that i think we said that a couple of times like i think that's a dynamite idea hollywood if you're listening call us baby well right. I don't, i don't know about call us but call some him, historians
0: him stealing the boat is like the first 20 minutes and then there's mm-hmm. still so much it's, <laughs> right. it's so crazy uh but I, I was, I was really impressed with everyone. Again, I want to thank, uh, the people who came on to speak to us. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, thank uh, thank
2: you for coming on. You guys are absolutely.
0: Um, and I also want to thank Ron Ferguson, Anna J. Cooper, Robert Smalls, Cook third class, Doris, Dory Miller, uh, May Donald and Marcus Garvey. Um, along with all the other people who need to be talked about that, we didn't talk about and probably don't even know about yet so we'll have to do this again
2: some highlights like uh i'm just gonna swoop in because i want to talk about beulah may donald i mean that was just like a really powerful story i was really mm-hmm. impressed with robert smalls but like the beulah may donald story oh, kind of got to me yeah
0: yeah <laughs> mostly mostly the beulah may donald it's more about my hatred of the kkk Oh sure, and it's yeah.
1: So, I mean, it's a such it's righteous a righteous
0: justice.
1: Yeah, so Anna J. Cooper had come up in our education episode, yes. and Maggie had mentioned, you know, some stuff about how she had, um, how she had earned a PhD while raising, you know, for the five kids of her, um, her brother who had passed away, and the weirdest part about it was that that was like maybe a third of her life story. Being a, a black woman in Late 19th century America, getting a college degree as a black woman in in late 19th century America, raising five kids while getting a PhD. And then that was just the start of her career. Yeah. Was just incredible. What a woman. I I hope I can accomplish, you know, like a hundredth of. What any yeah, of these any, people did?
0: Any of us,
2: yeah. But yeah, big big thanks to Billy, Michael, Maggie, and Lolita. Thank you Absolutely. guys, mm-hmm. Andy, and
0: and thank you, Pat. and thank
1: you. Ah, shucks. <laughs> and uh, I really need a couple of catchphrase yeah, I hope we gave you something to think about. Love you. Bye. Bye. Hey, thanks for tuning in. Although the episode is over, we would love to continue the conversation. Hop on over to our Twitter, Instagram, or our Facebook discussion group. You can find links in the doobly-doo to help keep it going. Shoot, bring a friend in on it, too, by sharing the episode with them. And if you feel so inclined, you can even help support the show by subscribing to us on Patreon.
2: I'm not sure that I'm thankful for Marcus Garvey, but a big okay <laughs> to Marcus Garvey.
0: I'd like to. I'd like to say, Marcus Garvey, you were problematic in a whole bunch of ways, but also <laughs> important. Right. Like uh, maybe maybe I want to retract the word hero there and put in the word interesting guy.